The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at tntradio.live. Fearless, informative, and unfettered. Mark Morano is unleashed on today's news talk, TNT Radio. Breaking news. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano. The breaking news is one of the world's wealthiest men now says if we may if we pay more taxes to the government, we can control climate change. Yes, Elon Musk, the X slash formerly known as Twitter uh, owner and extraordinaire Tesla and uh, all the other Neuralink and his space programs and everything else has now put his huge brain power to climate change and is claiming that a carbon tax is the way we solve climate change. I can assure you it's not paying more taxes to the government will not make hurricanes less frequent, will not save, uh, will not stop Florida from going half underwater if that's what the earth and nature decide to do. Let's take a look at what Elon Musk actually said and we'll break it down. This is Elon Musk clip three. We need to have a carbon tax and to make it something which is neither a left nor a right issue, we should make it probably a revenue neutral carbon tax. So this would be a case of increasing taxes on carbon, but then re reducing taxes in, in other places. So maybe there would be a reduction in sales tax or VAT and an increase in carbon tax. So that only those using high levels of carbon would pay an increased tax. In, in order to give industry time to react, this could be a phased in approach so that maybe it takes five years before the carbon taxes are very high. So that means that only companies that don't take action today will suffer in five years. But there needs to be a clear message from government in this regard, because the fundamental problem is the rules today incent people to create carbon. And this, this is madness. And whatever you incent will happen. That, that's why you know, we're, we're seeing very little effect thus far. Very little effect in reducing emissions. And government incentives are crazy to make us build EVs. Government incentives are crazy to make us build solar and wind when they don't solve the alleged problem. Uh, I, I just, Elon Musk is fascinating because he says really intelligent things and then really dumb things. And this is one of the dumb things. I go to a man named Spencer Morrison, a National Economics uh, Institute in Canada, and this is my favorite all-time analysis. Carbon taxes increase global CO2 emissions, period. Good night. Good night, everyone. Ba -da 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 -da. It's that simple. I don't understand what Elon Musk is claiming. Any, First of all, any industry that gets a, a bigger tax is going to pass that on to consumers. So all he's basically saying is that every socioeconomic group, and it disproportionately harms the poor uh, and the, the lower income, are going to be paying more for energy because no business is going to be like, well, I'll just absorb these costs. I'm not going to pass that on because I'm I'm saving the planet. This is a carbon tax. We've got to solve climate change. This is what he actually thinks. But this is back to Spencer Morrison. Not only does the logic show carbon taxes in the West invariably increase global CO2, but so does the empirical evidence. And it's incredible because if you look at carbon taxes, all they're going to do is make our energy more expensive, burden our innovation, burden our projects, burden financing, and it just means more reliance on countries that will never have carbon tax. And that includes China, India, Brazil, Middle East, 
Russia, uh, and all these other countries joining uh, the, the the BRACs and all that. It's is it makes no sense. Why do I do it? And the other thing is, once you give government a new, he also said in this in his claim, Elon Musk, that we would reduce uh, you know other taxes to compensate. Oh, that sounds like a great. So it'd be let me guess. Revenue neutral. Oh, we've solved the problem. We're going to have a revenue. Who can complain? We're not raising taxes. This is revenue neutral. No, you are giving the government an entire new class category and authority to tax. You're introducing a new tax to the powers of government. Now, you could temporarily reduce some other taxes, but they're going to go back up. And this tax, and I love the other people say, well, we're going to limit it to this, that, and we're going to guarantee it doesn't go higher. Oh, really? Is that like the income tax in 1913 was only 1-2% and only on the wealthy? It's never going to change, right? Let's introduce this whole new authority in taxes, and then it's all going to be solid and done. Now, this is medieval witchcraft, and it's alive and well with the owner of X and Twitter. I just don't understand how this man, Elon Musk, could make these asinine claims. Uh, it, It just absolutely makes no sense. Carbon taxes increase emissions. It's a shell game of nonsense that's going to outsource more jobs, wealth, energy production, and and strategically it puts us national security disadvantage. I want Elon Musk to rescind this, and someone's got to talk to him. And the other thing is, it's medieval witchcraft, as I said, because what is our end game? What you have carbon taxes? So let's see if a hurricane hits Florida, right? An average hurricane that they say is unprecedented because it hits some fifty mile an hour, some fifty mile stretch of beach that it never had that category three hurricane. Are we gonna then ratchet up the carbon tax for three years because of that hurricane that was really bad. Oh my gosh, there was a drought over in California. We're gonna have to really ratchet up the carbon tax. You gotta pay your fair share. We gotta make this happen. What does that remind you of? It reminds me a lot of COVID. COVID cases are up. You're not wearing your mask. You're not getting the vaccine. you stay at home orders. We're gonna have to cancel school longer. We can't go back to... We're going to punish you further. Churches can't open. The cases are up. That's because people aren't following the rules. Carbon taxes are are going to have to go up when the weather doesn't meet the preferred uh, objectives. And are we going to have any criteria for when, like, okay, finally we've solved climate change. It's going to be tied to CO2 emissions. I mean, to hell with this. To hell with Elon Musk on this. He is an important figure. He's done great stuff on, on X slash Twitter. Uh, but he could not be more wrong on carbon taxes. And I say, go to hell if that's your opinion. And he needs to actually, I would like to see him. I hope there's enough pressure brought to bear in this first week of February, 2024, that he is forced to retract it and say how dumb this was. Uh, but this is one of those things where a lot of people just say like, oh, you know, if we actually were going to do some carbon taxes, we could, oh yeah, that would make sense. I used to say that when I worked in the Senate Environment Public Works. Well, the most logical way, the least damage is carbon. And it's probably true, the least damage to the economy. I mean, at least the taxes, you get a tax as a tax as a tax, as opposed to layer and layer of regulations, environment, social governance, and all the identity politics mixing in and the corporate government collusion, all that stuff. I mean, a carbon tax is the least offensive, probably, of a lot of these options. But what's our end game? We're, we're not going to tax the, the, we're not going to tax our way into a better climate, okay? This is just asinine. And all you're doing is giving the government a massive new authority to tax. So, sorry, I didn't wanna spend too much time on that, but I thought that was important to get that on the record with Elon Musk, absolutely nuts. And by the way, carbon taxes will support this kind of madness. This is clip one, net zero, French electric police 
are powering their EV bus, their EV police cars and police vans with diesel generators. They're saving the earth. Let's see clip one. And you can see that there's no audio, but that's it. There's the diesel generator and they're charging their van. So how do you feel now? Are we saving the planet? And of course that doesn't deal with the half a million pounds of material, probably more in a van that go into making, including rare earth mining from questions with low environmental countries, low environmental standards and low human rights records. And of course, they're recharging. When they do recharge on a grid, they're probably recharging on a chiefly fossil fuel grid. Hey, and when they can't do that, just get a diesel generator. And we've seen many instances of this, people charging their with their generators, either gas or diesel, charging up their electric appliances. That's, that's how you save the planet, 2024 style. Bonkers, okay? Bonkers, bonkers, bonkers. It's it's offensive. Everything everything in the world today is offensive. I'm offended. Okay, uh, we're going to talk a lot today about World Health Organization and the pandemic treaty. And uh, I, we're going to have on first of all after the first break, David Bell, public health and uh, internal physician, PhD in population health. He's actually was a medical officer at the World Health Organization, and he's going to go through a whole series of issues. Well, in honor of that. I got some great clips here. This is, I want to go start with uh, clip four. This is Merrill Ness explains how the World Health Organization's proposed pandemic treaty will enable the WHO to take over jurisdiction of everything in the world by just saying climate change. Let's go clip four, Dr. Merrill Ness. We're undergoing a soft coup. And the idea is to create a whole new set of laws and ignore the existing human rights laws and other laws under the pretext of pandemic preparedness and the biosecurity agenda. The WHO is developing through all its nations, but with the WHO directorate in the United States in charge, a pandemic treaty and amendments to the existing international health regulations that will remove the human rights protections currently um, embedded in the IHRs, will enforce surveillance, censorship, get rid of freedom of speech, require governments to censor and only push a single narrative. Also, we will be sub subject, if, if they can make this work, to vaccines developed in 100 days, which the organization CEPI is planning to do. And one of the People who founded CEPI was Jeremy Farrar, who is now the chief scientist at the WHO to bring this forward. How, how do you like that? The vaccines in 100 days. You know what that tells you? That the vaccines have long ago been made and they're waiting to be distributed. The only thing they need is a, an excuse, number one, and you can always release a virus from a lab to, to give them the excuse. And number two, they don't want any regulatory uh, impediment uh, and they don't want any... any uh, hoops to jump through, and they just want to get these in many people's arms as possible. And believe me, vaccine mandates are back on the table. Remember, the vaccine mandates went away, but the, cons the, the power derived from them has not. They were not ruled unconstitutional here in the U.S. There was more of a procedural different things that they had to get rid of them in the federal government, um, but they could absolutely come back. So you're going to have 100-day vaccines rushed to the market that they're going to try to force you to take if you want to keep your job and travel, your kid to go to school, and et cetera, et cetera. 
dystopian hell. All right, this is uh, Dr. Meryl Nass explaining part two. And I think this is where she mentions the climate change, but the, the, the explains of the WHO's pandemic will enable the WHO to take over everything. And you heard that already. This is just bypassing every ounce of democracy left. And we're going to be subject to the whims of these tyrants. Listen, clip uh, clip five, part two. Amendments do is to bind the state so they are no longer recommendations, but enforceable edicts. Uh, provide a liability shield, get rid of intellectual property rights, move supplies from one country to another, um, enforce digital passports, and the director general of WHO can demand that a pandemic or a potential pandemic exists. He can just declare it with no standards, and then countries around the world will have to obey. Uh, also, the WHO will tell you what drugs you can and can't use in your nation once a pandemic is declared. Obviously, the budget will increase. Um, One Health is another part of this. One Health is a concept that was created to enable the WHO, with these documents, to take over jurisdiction of everything in the world by saying that climate change, animals, plants, water systems, ecosystems are all central to health. Also embedded in this concept is a peculiar notion that humans are no longer of greater value than animals. Ding, 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 ding. We have been harping on this show on TNT and Unleashed all about humans uh, being brought down to the level of animals and not just animals, but trees, lakes, plants, rocks, parcels of land, uh, and bodies of water nature rights. And if you violate these, you're committing ecocide. We heard this at the Davos meeting. We hear this from CBS News and other corporate media promoting this concept, the legal personhood of inanimate objects, of things in nature on equal footing with human beings. Um, I guess they're calling it an earth charter as opposed to the Magna Carta. I mean, this is like the earth rights uh, and she heard her mention climate change there, climate change is the threat right before the Dubai conference. You had 100, 200 medical journals led by the British Medical Journal saying it's time to declare climate change a public health emergency. That way you can roll climate into the public health sphere. This is why the Harvard School of Medicine has said unchecked climate change leads to more COVID-like viruses. This is why Anthony Fauci has warned that climate change left unchecked will lead to more viruses. I mean, if you don't support net zero, the Green New Deal, you're a grandma killer because you're creating more viruses. Terrifying stuff. Well, for his part, the head of the WHO, Dr. Tedros, states the, the, the World Health Organization's pandemic is mission critical. Let's take a look. Clip six. This is how they sell the World Health Organization. He says it's all misinformation that, uh, we, don't, that we don't like. It. The pandemic agreement is mission critical for humanity. If it had been in place before COVID-19, we would not have lost so much. We would not have suffered so much. At the generation that lived through COVID-19, we have a collective responsibility to protect future generations from the suffering we endured. As young people, 
you have the most to gain from a strong agreement. It's likely you will face another pandemic in your lifetime. We can't know how mild or severe it might be, but we can be prepared. So we need you to raise your voices, to tell your leaders that you want this agreement, you want this accord. Okay, first of all, this is good news. Tedros is out there before the big meeting coming up in a couple months in Geneva, Switzerland, saying, we got to get people to support this. We need people to speak out, which tells me he's facing a boatload of resistance around the world. That's the good news. He would, he sounds a little bit desperate, like we got to get people to support this. You know, we got to get people speaking up. And, and the next clip, which I'm going to save for my guest, uh, he talks about the misinformation about it and the people who are opposed to this. And this is going to be good for us because you know why? Because these unelected bureaucrats have the best force. They're experts. They know more than we do. And they're going to keep us safe. And you know what he said? There might be another pandemic. Oh, my gosh. There could be another virus. Like, oh, really? There's been viruses in the history of humans all the time. And in the 20th century alone, you had the Spanish flu. And then you had uh, several, a big outbreak during President Eisenhower, another outbreak during Lyndon Johnson. And then you've had multiple outbreaks since all the way up. And it's all about how you react to them. And you never want to react the way the World Health Organization wants you to. You never want to shut down society. You never want to mandate vaccines. You never want to mandate masks. You never want to shut down travel. You never want to close churches. You never want to cancel medical procedures. You never want to instill fear as your number one goal. But guess what? That's the way they're going to keep you safe. They want to keep you locked down this time in the name of public health. And it's, well, this time meaning aside from all the climate, but again, in the name of public health, but they're going to roll climate into that. All right. There's a lot to unpack here. And as I said, I'm I'm really a uh, good chance I'll be going to Geneva. It's all depending on credentials to get into this uh, World Health Organization Assembly in May of 2024. I will keep you posted on that. Well, when we come back, we are going to take a deep dive into this with Dr. David Bell, and he is uh, actually a public health and internal physician, and he actually worked as a at the head of the World Health Organization medical officer at the World Health Organization program head, Foundation for Innovation Diag Diagnostics in Geneva. So this man has seen the inside. We're going to ask him all about the World Health Organization, Tedros, and the Pandemic Treaty, and a bunch of other public health type questions. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. We'll be right back after these messages. TNT's Jeremy Nell. Nice comment here from Rebecca. She says the youngest people um, I work with are a bit more mature, but their interactions with the public is stifled. And she's referring to the excessive use of cell phones and social media and how it's making them so antisocial also. The business is open six days a week. One of his staff members formally requested that they shouldn't, you know, that they could they be given permission not to have to work on Wednesdays so that they could help at the dog shelter. Now, as you know, I'm a dog lover. I have hunting dogs, I've got dogs coming out of my ears, my Malinois, and this dog, this Malinois, is bright even by Malinois standards. She can do crossword puzzles. Is lying under my desk at the moment, feeling sorry for herself because she's just come on heat for the first time and she's completely bewildered. She doesn't know why she's bleeding to death. It's not about 
whether it's a good or a bad thing to work at animal shelters. That's a delightful thing. It's a noble thing to do. But who in their right minds goes to their boss and says, would you mind? I'd rather not work on Wednesdays if it's okay, because I've got other priorities in a, in a town <laughs> down the road. Jeremy now on today's News Talk TNT. She used to dance and dream of a better life, a brighter future, with nutritious food to eat, a chance to learn, to get an education, and do incredible things. Today, thanks to Children International and friends like you, she dances for the world. Together, we give children in poverty a chance to set their sights high and achieve their dreams by ensuring that they have access to health care, education, life skills, and more so they can grow, thrive, and believe in themselves. Gracias. Gracias. Learn more about Children International and join us in our life-changing work at children.org today. Without CO2, the world stops breathing. CO2 sustains all life on Earth. Government, the WEF, and the elite believe humans are the carbon they really want to be rid of. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back to Unleashed on TNT. Uh, I'm your host, Mark Morano. Okay, David Bell is joining us. Uh, he has affiliate with brownstone.org, which is a great organization. We've had on Jeffrey Tucker here before. Uh, who was I originally heard of the Brownstone Institute, fantastic work exposing public health tyranny. Uh, but Dr. David Bell, former medical officer, scientist at the World Health Organization, program head for malaria and febrile diseases at the Foundation for Innovative Di Diagnostics in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, welcome to the program, Dr. Bell. Thanks, Mark. Okay, well, I thought I'd just show you, why don't we just, I'm gonna play a clip of Tedros, the uh, head of the World Health Organization, talking about, he originally said that the pandemic treaty coming up is mission critical. Uh, and this is him explaining that there's a lot of misinformation out there. Let's go ahead and play clip seven and then you can react to it. It's your future. And we need you to raise your voices to counter the lies that are undermining the agreement on social media in conversations with your friends and families, and in any other way. We cannot allow this historic agreement, this milestone in global health, to be sabotaged by those who spread lies, either deliberately or unknowingly. Are they spreading lies? Is this misinformation? Why is Tedros so worried is the other question. Is he hitting a lot of pushback for this? Because he seems like a man concerned and trying to convince people. He, he seems like he's under the gun, like it's not going well. What's your reality? What's your reaction? Yeah, uh, of course, um, people tell lies about everything. But the vast majority of the information and pushback on this is based on reality. Um, the WHO is being disingenuous at best frequently and Tedros himself in the way he's characterizing this. Um, the, the, he's talking about two instruments. They, uh, they call them instruments as a, <clears throat> some amendments to the international health regulations and there's a treaty, a new treaty. Um, they're both important. The amendments to the health regulations are actually the most important. That's where the teeth of all this is. But what they're 
essentially pushing for and Tedros is pushing for is for countries to sign on to this and in doing so they will undertake to follow his or his successor's instructions uh, giving him the power to declare a health emergency of international concern on the basis of a threat even of a, a viral variant something that an individual not even a committee considers it a threat then he, the amendments will countries will undertake to follow his instructions, uh, including essentially lockdowns, so um, border closures, um, mandated vaccination, mandated medical examinations, quarantine, you know, confinement of individuals. This is someone in Geneva, in WHO, who will decide when this is appropriate and decide to do it. So there's pushback that this isn't an invasion of sovereignty. I mean, of course it is an invasion of sovereignty. Um, countries are signing on to give over their sovereignty. It's not that someone's taking it. The countries will sign on to agree to this. And this will happen because uh, the countries are represented very much in the health field by, to a large extent, by a group of people who are part of this sort of international revolving door industry of global health. Um, the work at the WHO, work at um, other big international organisations, work for some very wealthy philanthropists and work sometimes for the governments. And so we're talking about, you know, a group of people who have huge self-interest who are running this and putting it together and who essentially agree on it. Uh, so it is an, yes, it's, a, it's an invasion of sovereignty. These are um, rights that have previously been in democratic countries with individuals and with governments being handed to a foreign entity. Um, the, the, the other significant thing here is that it is based on, and Tedros, we just heard him say this, uh, a threat of pandemics that we have, urgency, etc. Um, I mean, this is a fallacy. And in 2019, most people in WHO would have confirmed it was a fallacy. Um, we had the Spanish flu was the last last big event before, you know, discounting COVID for the moment. That was before we had antibiotics. It's over a century ago in a different world. Um, most people died of secondary bacterial infections. Since then, we've just had, you know, WHO lists a pandemic in the 50s and one in the 60s. One was in the middle of Woodstock. You know, no one cared. We just went on with life of normal and got on with it. Um, and then we had COVID, which was really unusual in most Western countries. The average age of death is about 82, 83 years of age. Um, it's hardly made a dent at all on overall mortality in these countries. There seems to be more of a dent being produced in the aftermath um, due to the response in various forms than due to the virus itself. The, the, it, there's been a lot of information, you know, noise in the media lately about disease X. Um, and Ted yes. Ross has been talking about this. So that, that comes from a concept that WHO has because they can't come up with another virus that looks dangerous enough. So you <laughs> say disease X was as a basis for this. And uh, they basis is in their list of priority pathogens, which the World Economic Forum recently had their meeting based around. Um, yeah, the, these priority pathogens of WHO are a good illustration of the problem we're facing. They, they include COVID-19, which is now essentially gone. <clears throat> then they, they have a thing, Lassa fever, which is an endemic virus confined to West Africa. Um, it's about three to 5,000 deaths a year, perhaps. But it's an endemic virus that's been there you know, for as long as we know. 
And then, yeah, they list, I can read the list because it's important, Crimea, Congo, fever, um, MERS, which people heard of, SARS, the first SARS outbreak, which we, people had heard of, Zika virus, Rift Valley fever. That's it. None of these diseases are on this priority list of WHO, apart from COVID and Lassa fever, have ever in the whole history of humanity, recorded history, all over, the, including the whole world, killed a thousand people. Yeah, you know, SARS stopped at about a bit over 800 or a bit under, it's MERS the same. So we're talking about really rare diseases with really no mortalities and they have a problem. So because they need to sell this if they're going to concentrate, you know, it's essentially concentrating wealth and power in the hands of pharmaceutical companies and their investors. Um, and they need a story to push that. And the, the story of reality is not a good one. What is the WHO claim the death toll is from COVID globally? And then what are your estimates for the actual death toll? You know, people died with COVID versus of COVID, all that. Does the WHO claim it even, does it come close to the Spanish flu? Because also you have President Trump claiming no, no, his vaccine. Not close at all, not close at all. So the, the WHO claims about seven and a half to eight million people. And the Spanish flu is regarded around 20 million, uh, is that right? It's about 25 to 50 in a much smaller world population. Right. So, so higher, in today's yeah. terms, in today's terms, it would be two, three hundred million, something like that. Gotcha. Uh, so we're talking about one fiftieth, two percent with COVID, and that is including, you know, the fairly. Do you accept unusual... that number? Yeah. Well, do you accept it? it, it, it depends, heavily inflated. It depends what you call death. Um, that may be. It may be true that that many people died with COVID you know, with detectable COVID in their system. And some of those people COVID would have helped along to die. Um, most old people, old frail people die of a viral infection of some sort because they're, you know, they have other illnesses, they're teetering on the edge of, of death, unfortunately, and a, a virus comes along and takes them over. And that is the normal way that old people die. Um, a lot of the COVID, people with COVID, about 94% in the US, had severe comorbidities, that is, you know, diabetes, chronic renal failure, et cetera. So, yes, you, there may be a figure like that, but most of those people would have died probably within one to two years because they were old and sick. Whereas with the Spanish flu, um, about half or a majority were young adults and children. And so they lost 50 years of life, whereas... Um, in COVID, people lost about one or two. So it's a very, very different, you know, in yeah, that, average, if you talk about impact that way, then you're talking about 1,000 of the Spanish flu or something like that. Well, yeah, the average age of death in COVID was older than the average, than the life expectancy of that. Yes, said. it was. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me ask you a question. Former President Trump obnoxiously says over and over that Operation Warp Speed, which brought us the mRNA vaccines, saved us from Spanish toll-like deaths. He still says this all the time. Can you just break yeah. that down? Is there any chance there's any truth behind any of that? <laughs> no, there's no chance there's any truth behind that. Okay. Um, so we had a year of COVID without, at least a year, um, probably a bit more, without the vaccine at all, because it, it seems likely that it, it emerged, you know, perhaps August to October. And, and a stronger form of COVID. 
stronger variant back then i would have a stronger variant so the initial variants had a had a higher mortality yeah that's partly because they were probably worse more virulent partly because um the more susceptible people sicker people uh, you know the first time they get the infection is when they're going to die so by the by certainly mid 2021 the vast majority of people on earth had encountered COVID and had good immunity to it already cdc has published good studies showing that uh, prior infection is better than vaccination and that vaccine adds almost nothing to prior infection so by the time that most people had access to the vaccines even if they were going to work well they were not going to benefit because they already had broad immunity from the infection itself was the vaccines were the vaccines all the different forms safe and effective as you hear and we might get banned from social media if you don't say they were safe and effective <laughs> so it's really difficult to tell because the original studies um for instance a six-month follow-up from pfizer of their own study showed more deaths in the unva- in the vaccinated group than the unvaccinated it, it was it, it there's different reports of, you know the, there's different versions of this report one to the fda one in the new england journal etc but it's about three or four more deaths out of about 20 in the vaccinated group so there's a trend that the vaccinated group will worse off that doesn't suggest that this is giving great benefit um we have an in the, the high the, the high risk age group for COVID, which was you know as we said people over 75 80 elderly with comorbidities there's very few of those in the study so we don't know whether it's helping that more vulnerable group or not we also know that there's a high a, a very large difference in batches of vaccine um f- firstly that the one in the trial was made completely differently than the the one that was mass produced yeah the consumer use. so it was expressed in um e coli versus <clears throat> the, the, the synthesis the way it was synthesized was very different um so the, the and then the concentration of mrna was different between different batches has been clearly shown the amount of contaminant dna was very different in the different batches so it may be that some of these batches had almost no very very low mortality we had, there is a difference in mortality between batches has clearly been shown so it may be that those were relatively safe but were also not very effective depending on what was in them um so essentially we don't have that data there's been no large independent trials the only trials we have are run by the drug companies that make them Otherwise, we're just relying on very poor population data where we know there's a lot of misclassification of deaths. Well, how do you explain, you know, what's the what's the reasoning for everyone from Rachel Maddow to Anthony Fauci to all the corporate media, all just repeating that mantra, the vaccines <laughs> safe and effective, and they, they still tell you the vaccines saved lives. Um, you know, everyone needs, you're a doctor. Would you have, first of all, secondly, would you have, did you recommend the vaccine? Would you recommend the vaccine to patients? Do you think anyone would have benefited from it? Or, you know, my 94 year old mother didn't take it. I fought to have my 98 year old aunt in a nursing home, not get it. Um, Was there any benefit in your view as a medical doctor? 
firstly, I, I'm working in public health, not not seeing patients clinically. So, um, okay. uh, yeah, well, but you, I, mean, would I would comment generally. Yeah, so I would recommend that people be fully informed and make their own decision. Um, so, that, you know, we don't have good data on the people who are highly vulnerable. There's very, very strong, um, compelling data that uh, for a child or a young, healthy adult, um, there is no benefit. And by the time the vaccine came around, they already had good immunity. So the better your immunity and the less vulnerable you are to the virus, the more it matters that there are also very significant side effects because then the side effects become relatively more likely than the gain. So it seems clear that in the younger age groups, the side effects, and we can see, you know, that there's an unprecedented level of effects aside of adverse events associated with it reported to the FAIRS, CDC database, et cetera. But we know that there's a, you know, issues with blood coagulability, et cetera, clotting, um, myocarditis, et cetera. There's a whole list. So, for young adults and so on, it, it doesn't it never really made sense. Um, for someone who's 85 year old, obese, diabetic, bit of renal failure, who's never had COVID, we don't know. It, it's possible that there would be some benefit. But what is needed then is that those people presented with the risks and benefits honestly so that they can make their own decision. It shouldn't be in the end a doctor's decision, it should be the individual. But why was the man, why was it just like automatons that mantra it's safe and effective? Why was any doctor or anyone who spoke out against the vaccine silenced and censored? How did our system get set up? And then how did these vaccine mandates come at the same time? I mean, did, were you shocked when the vaccine mandates came? But it came from this whole repeated mantra from corporate media. What's behind that? I was shocked that it happened so broadly. I'm not shocked that something happened. Um, you know, I've worked in this industry for a decade, couple of decades, and <clears throat> it was it was clear at the first SARS outbreak that people got very excited about um, having a pandemic. You know, a lot of public health is just investigating the diarrhea outbreak at the local, you know, Chinese, Europe, French, whatever restaurant. Um, if you get a pandemic coming along, you can feel like you're saving the world. And people, this is, we're all human, so people get excited about this. They so want to jump on that bandwagon. There's also a lot of money to be made by selling vaccines. And if you can scare people into a theoretical risk like this, then you can sell vaccines and you can make, as we saw during COVID, hundreds of billions of dollars. So that hundreds of billions of dollars is ploughed back into media. Um, the largest sponsors of media in the US are pharmaceutical companies. So you mentioned people in MSNBC and so on. They're dependent to a large extent or, you know, for their, often I think for their survival, it always an organization on pharma sponsorship. If they go out and say pharma companies are ripping off the public and lying, spreading misinformation about a product that the pharmaceutical company wants to make hundreds of billions of dollars off, then it's very unlikely they'll get further sponsorship. And the Rachel Maddows of this world and so on, they're smart enough to know that. Wow. Uh, and 
when when this World Health Organization, this pandemic, I know you mentioned there's two different uh, lines. There's the pandemic treaty, and then there's amendments to the, I guess, the World Health Assembly or, or the World Health <clears throat> documents. What I, I was, I'm understanding that the developing world was one of the biggest resistance they met over national sovereignty issues. Tell us just the history of that with the pandemic treaty, these and these amendments. Yeah. And what do you expect to happen in May? Was there is there is this like the last shot for now for this, or is there, are they going to just keep coming at this year after year after year, pushing these amendments and the treaty? Uh, yeah, this will keep happening. It's not just the WHO. We've got the World Bank, the G20. Um, the World Economic Forum, which is you know, a private corporate club that's very influential now in governments. So there's a huge industry behind this because there's an unprecedented amount of money to be made from this. We haven't seen something like this, I think, really before. So um, the, it, there is pushback from you know, a number of sources. One of them is low middle income countries, uh, particularly African nations. And this is I think because there's very strong memories of colonialism and they see this quite rightly as a repeat of colonialism. You can look at the World Economic Forum and it's constituent companies almost like the the British East India Company, et cetera, where they partner with the government, they sort of you know, help the government in its ideals, you know, wants of hegemony and so on over a large part of the world. And in the process, they get very rich and they, they implement the harder of the government policies and make it look like the government's free of it. So it, it's a colonialist agenda. It's very driven by wealthy Western nations, particularly. Um, they're doing it through these pharmaceutical companies and it is concentrating wealth. They did it very successfully during COVID from low income countries to higher. All these countries now are much more heavily in debt, much more vulnerable to World Bank sanctions, IMF sanctions, et cetera, which are a real threat if they don't go along with this. So they're seeing this, but it's unclear whether they can really push back. All right, we have to take a break. We're talking with David Bell, senior scholar at the Brownstone Institute, a public health physician, biotech consultant in global health, and former World Health Organization. I'm going to ask you a little bit about that when we come back, what it was like working with the World Health Organization or for, I'm not sure which one it was for you. But uh, this is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. We'll be right back after these messages. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the end of the week. So how about a little dose of Joe Biden at his best to get you through the weekend? Folks, um, uh, I, uh, if I were smart, I'd say thank you and leave. There's asylum officers and over 100 cutting-edge inspection machines to help detect and stop fentanyl coming out of our southwest border. Greedflation, shrinkflation. You see that article about the Snickers bar? Well, it's going to stop. America, we're tired of being played for suckers. We get thousands. Look, we, we, you know, we now have, we used to, before the recession, before the, the pandemic, the beer brewed here, <laughs> it is used to make the brew beer in this refinery. Oh, Earth Rider, thanks for the Great Lakes. I wonder why it's going Cost 10 bucks to make it. 10 bucks to make it. We'll teach Donald Trump a valuable lesson. Don't mess with the women on Now, normally this would be humorous, funny, you know? But this is a man who's president of the United States and looking for four more years on the job. 
It's frightening. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern time right here on TNT. When I had my heart event close to four years ago, I was at the gym, thought I deserve a coffee and thought I'll top up with fuel, ordered a coffee. But while I was pumping fuel, I started to get chest pains. Then it got worse and worse and worse. So then I was leaning on the counter thinking, yeah, something's not quite right. So then I went to wait for the coffee and that's when it really, really hit. And Joy just, you know, mouthed, do you need an ambulance? And I remember nodding. I wasn't even thinking about a heart attack. I just thought something is seriously wrong with me here. So when the cardiologist came to see me, she informed me that I'd had what they call a widowmaker heart attack. Bit of a shock when someone says, you know, you nearly died. <laughs> Everybody should be aware of all the symptoms of a heart attack that women can have that aren't typical of the shoulder pain, the right arm pain. I go to the gym, I do yoga, Pilates, I swim, I go on bike rides, and yet I still had a heart attack. You just don't know it could be you. Fearless, informative, and unfettered. Mark Morano is unleashed on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back to Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. All right, we're talking with Dr. David Bell, senior scholar at the Brownson Institute. Now, I just want to ask you, he says you were a former medical officer and scientist at the World Health Organization, and I assume was the program head from malaria and febrile, if I'm saying that right, diseases. Uh, was that a different for, uh, for innovative new diagnostics? What did you do for the World Health Organization and what was that like? And do you respect the World Health Organization? Are they generally a good organization who has gone bad in the last couple of years? Or do you just think they're rotten to the core? Uh, how would you view them? It's a large organization. It's got a lot of people with different intents, different um, motivations, uh, like any large organization. I think it's probably been there for too long now. So it like any large organization, it becomes stale. Um, it, when it was founded in 1946, um, you know, the people talk about certain people had nefarious intent, but by and large, most people involved, they had good intent. There is a, we need, or we certainly benefit from organizations that help us to coordinate at an international level that can help countries that don't have the internal capacity to you know, do things themselves that they'd like to. Um, and if they can voluntarily call on someone to come and help in certain aspects of then stop them when they want to stop them, then that will make sense. Um, the, even in COVID, the WHO put out some good work that early on they put out some modeling on how malaria is gonna get worse, tuberculosis was gonna get worse, et cetera, and this all happened, how malnutrition will get worse. And this, um, you know, so there, there are people in there, even that put out some good instructions on how to use PCR tests and how they shouldn't be used solely for diagnosis. Um, so, so there's people in that organization who are trying to do the right thing. Um, unfortunately, over the last 20 years, particularly, it's it's really changed due to the way it's funded. And there's been a first a, an increase in private funding, um, which is particularly focused around people interested in vaccines and uh corporate you know companies pharmaceutical companies and so this is and the, the other change with the funding is it's become specified they used to have core funding which meant you give countries give money to the who the who figures out the best way to use it based on where's the worst disease burden etc the other countries are most in need um now most of the funding about 75 80 percent is specified or thematic which means that the funder 
gives it to the WHO to do a certain thing uh, for a disease they're interested in, um, you know, an aspect of that disease like vaccines for malaria or something. So the money goes to WHO, but the WHO is really just a tool for the funder. And most of the WHO's work now is, is this. So when we talk about the World Economic Forum partnering with WHO, we're really talking about them just getting WHO to do what they want and you know to do what the corporate corporatists in the World Economic Forum want the WHO to do. And it's it's not by and large necessarily what the people working in WHO would like to do or think is the right thing to do. But they have their careers and they have very good salaries, very good, um, you know, travel business class, stay in five star hotels, um, et cetera. And, you know, you've got kids that you need to keep in school, you've got healthcare, et cetera, you want a pension at the end of it. All the things that humans generally want depend on them towing the line and doing what the funder wants. Otherwise, they and those working under them will likely lose their jobs because they won't have funding. So, it's really an industry now. It's run mostly by the funders. It's deter it does what the funders require it to do. There's a World Health Assembly, which is each country has one vote. That's what's going to meet and decide on the treaty and so on in May, June of this year. So that that you know, ostensibly for the high policy level, it's one country, one vote. But the people representing those countries are part of this revolving door anyway, with pharma and so on. And you know, half of those countries are—they're not even pretending to be democracies. So you know, there are geopolitical interests in this as well. There are large countries, for instance, in East Asia that would be interested in um, having their economy um, overtake the economies of other countries. And you know, that's pretty normal from a geopolitical geopolitical standpoint, but it then becomes pretty insane that you would allow an organization heavily influenced by them to have control over your own people and your own health care. Well, talk to me about Bill Gates' influence in the world health. I understand, depending on how you do it, between the Bill and Melinda Gates and then his vaccine group, Gavi, he might be the single largest donor, surpassing the US, China. What has his influence been? Has that been a recent development? And how does he exert that at the WHO? It's mostly after the, over the last 20 years. Um, and it's mostly in infectious diseases. Um, and there's an increasing emphasis on vaccination, both directly and through Gavi, that's obviously just solely focused on vaccines. And, and yeah, there's a sort of emergency agenda at WHO that they um, specifically fund. So the, they also fund, you know, like a lot of philanthropists, Philanthropy is a lot of stuff that is quite useful. Um, it's not that Gates money hasn't done some good. It has for a lot of people. And the, the, the underlying problem is that um, whatever the intent of a person, if you have a person living in a rich country with a very wealthy background, deciding on what's best for people living at village level in Burkina Faso or India or whatever, then it's highly unlikely that they're going to come up with what is the best thing for those yeah. people. Oh, it's just obvious common sense, yeah. And when they have specified funding, they decide how their funding will be used and WHO has to go along with them and not with the wishes of those people in those villages. What about China's influence? Now, here's a question. When the WHO set their 
sent their delegation to China. I think this was late January, early February. They literally said, we've seen how to deal with the virus. The world needs to copy China's response, which at the time, the most authoritarian response in the world. They they were nailing people in their homes. They had hazmat suits on. They locked down yeah. entire cities. How did the WHO fall into that? Was that because of Chinese influence? Is that because of ideology? Was that just incompetence? Uh, or did they actually believe that China was actually dealing with the virus the best way? And they literally told the rest of the world to copy China? No, no, I mean, China showed us that this almost exclusively affects old people. Um, the data coming out of China, which published in Lancet early 2020, showed, you know, under 65, hardly anyone was dying. Um, so on that basis, they thought you should weld doors shut of apartment buildings and stop everyone working. So the people from WHO said that that really made a lot of sense. Um, so and, why did they say should, that? Yeah, what's so we, should stop, so we should stop them <laughs> paying taxes. We should impoverish them. So in 2019, the WHO published their pandemic influenza recommendations where they said, if you do these things, if you close borders, if you... Yeah, lock people down for you know, close workplaces for more than seven to ten days, etc. You will make people much poorer. It'll be a public health negative overall. And it's um, common sense, yeah. It's so common we'll sense, yeah. And, and yeah, particularly it'll harm poorer people. Rich people may be okay, but poorer people will be disproportionately harmed. So it'll increase inequality. So WHO knew all that when they went to China. So we can only assume that they didn't think that was important anymore. Um, <laughs> is it, yeah. if, if you have an insight into that as a WHO insider? Were they paid off? Were they influenced? Does China have the control of the world health? I mean, it just seems so, because even at the time, if you remember, Anthony Fauci said, can you imagine, you know, San Francisco or New York being shut down like large cities the way China is? And he goes, it could never happen here in the US. But then it did happen, largely because yeah. the world health said copy China. So in your view, why do you think they came, was it just, that was that was such a shocking moment in the whole pandemic of the, I don't even want to call it, I'll ask you that last about the, whether it was a pandemic or not, but that was a shocking moment. Do you have any insight into why they went to that insane recommendation to copy China? I think there's a lot of things at play. One of them simply is people get excited. Um, <laughs> these people yeah. may be on large salaries and they may be on TV, but they're humans who get excited about things like this. And they, they, it's the self-importance of being on TV and that sort of thing. It affects a lot of people. There is a lot of money in towing the line. And it became very clear early on that if you didn't tow the line, that was the opposite of a lot of money and uh, the opposite of a good career. So they had that in mind. Uh, I think there's a bit of groupthink. They they all get in a room together. They become an echo chamber. They convince themselves that this is an existential threat to humanity, and they forget to look at the actual numbers. So there's a lot of things here. I think this has been built up for a long time. The idea that we, you know, farmer have been pushing building influence in the public-private partnerships like Gavi and CEPI in the World Health Organization. So this was, you know, there's two streams of public health. This one took over. Um, at that time. All right, we only have like 20 seconds left, but was COVID-19 a pandemic? Do you think it met that qualification? Would you call it a pandemic? Yeah, it was a pandemic in that there was a virus that's spreading between countries and made some people sick, but it wasn't a pandemic that you would actually do much for if you okay. approached it properly. So a pandemic just spread. It wasn't a bad one. It was a mild one.
Okay, thank you very much. Dr. David Bell, Senior Scholar at the Brownstone Institute. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano. Thanks for watching.